you know, we're talking about something which essentially costs no money. You're reducing, slashing, you know, somebody's overheads, you know, personal overheads to buy alcohol. And by and large, will improve your mental health, improve your sleep, improve your, improve your relationships, improve your decision making, your, you know, any number of things and, you know, calorie intake and all sorts of stuff. And it's like, well, this is this is something with benefits, which costs, you know, is actually going to cost me less. So, I think there's underlying this. There is a, a good business case, let's say. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 35 of the Tribe Sober podcast. Now, we created Tribe Sober because we believe it's really, really hard to change your drinking alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community and helping each other to stay on track. Each week, we feature a community voice just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. Here's a lady from one of our WhatsApp groups. Since joining Tribe Sober, I have learned that I am a lot more capable of dealing with stress and sad news if I don't drink. So that night of the news, I chose not to drink. I had a good cry, made a big cup of tea, and I sat through those feelings of sadness. I reached out to the tribe on the WhatsApp group, and the members immediately started responding with encouragement. The fear of being alone in a time of crisis is gone and our tribe supports us in our wins as well as in our time of difficulty. So I am very chuffed with the changes that I've made. So if you want to join our community and get a bit of support, just go to tribesober.com and click on the Join Our Tribe button. Now this week I'm interviewing a British journalist He's called Phil Kane, and he's the author of two books about alcohol. His first book came out in 2016. It was called The Alcohol Companion, and it was a science-based account of alcohol for both professional and general readers. And the follow-on title is called Alcohol for Nerds, and that one offers reflections on the findings of The Alcohol Companion. These two titles have spawned a wide range of activities for Phil, including hosting discussion panels, which is how I met him. So let's get to our conversation. So, Phil, thank you so much for your time this morning. Let's let's just kick off by hearing a little bit about you. Who are you? Who is Phil? Who am I? Good question. Excellent question. Uh, I am a journalist. I'm a British journalist born in Manchester, as I believe you are uh, yourself. Uh, I live in Austria, where I uh, initially came to write about the former Yugoslavia. So I was a foreign correspondent writing for English-speaking newspapers. Then uh, essentially the interest in that topic died down around 2000, mid-2014, 15, that kind of uh, time. And I started to think of new topics, and I wrote a book about alcohol. Okay, and and why why did because now you've written two books, I think, haven't you? And you chair all sorts of discussions about alcohol. Why did you become so interested in this topic? Well, I suppose there's an element of uh, journalism where you are you are looking for problems. You come to the Balkans not because it's a, a happy and well functioning part of the world, but because it has and had problems uh, to write about. So. Alcohol presents an opportunity uh, in the eyes of journalists to to find problems to talk about and to discuss. So, as I was looking for new topics after writing about the Balkans, I thought that you know let's look at a science topic. I've got a mathematics background, so that gives me a kind of the language of science to to talk about a number of subjects. And I thought, well, this is a this is a problem. This is a, something that maybe uh, I can apply some of that um, you know <laughs> academic background and my journalistic background and put them together and hopefully provide some answers for people. 
Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a great angle to come at this thing from because there there's so many books out there which which I also love and they they say they change lives, but uh, mostly you see the books written by someone that had a hectic problem they managed to put it right and then maybe there's a little bit of a postscript on you know how I did it how you can do it, but uh, I love your kind of science based approach. And you, um, you talk in Alcohol for Nerds, it's such a cool title, I love that. Um, you talk about being alcohol aware and developing alcohol intuition. I, I kind of know what you mean, but let's elaborate a little bit on those concepts. Yeah, um, I mean, uh, taking al alcohol aware is maybe used and abuse in many, many places, but uh, intuition, I think, is something you see in uh, often in, you know, psycho pop psychological contexts and, and uh, in, you know, wellness contexts. There's something which we are sort of innate, it's an innate quality where we have an intuition about something and we should act on our, you know, inborn intuitions. But, um, you know, with a science background and a mathematics background, actually intuition is something that you uh, develop. You know, there are there are parts of physics and parts of, Many, you know, other sciences, you know, there's this famous thing in, uh, you know, uh, physics of um, uh, magnetic fields where where things, you know, you put two things together at, at this angle and then they come off, you know, it makes a, th a third thing at that third angle. And it, it just makes no sense. You have to get a feeling for it that, that these things do not act in quite the way that we want them to and may maybe we expect them to. And it's really to bring a certain amount of uh, intellectual understanding to something but then develop a feeling for it a, a a an intuitive feeling for it which you know takes practice just like uh like with mathematics or maybe on a more you know i've got the, the builders are in at the moment there's somebody working on the central heating and this this guy has an intuition for what is wrong with our heating he he, he hears something and then he has an intuition that maybe it's the pump or maybe it's the the boiler or you know some other part of the heating which i i simply do not have have not developed that that intuition and that's a, a, a mixture of intellectual knowledge and practical everyday knowledge that he's built up over many years yeah yeah i think that's that's so interesting because i think naturally in our bodies we'll have a kind of intuition that alcohol is not good for us because it's a toxin etc but once we get on that road and once we start drinking a lot we're kind of numbing all that down aren't we so we're not in touch really with our feelings because we're numbing them and we probably lose that intuition so um, mm. that's, well that's, I, that's I, think, I mean just not contradict you completely there but but i think one of the things with alcohol is the fact that it it feels feels good it feels you know uh, whether we we what are our choices around it it it, it can feel good or we can in, we can interpret the feelings that it gives us as being soothing or wholesome or relaxing or you know we can put these meanings and uh, onto it uh, which sort of makes sense and they're they're often uh, reinforced by the people around us and we live in this sort of state of sort of half truth uh, and you know it's it, it intuitively kind of makes sense but actually if as you you know if you actually apply some of the knowledge about it that these things don't really fully fit uh you know th these feelings they're not quite right and i think it's it's being a little bit more you know uh, rigorous about you know how the how well these intuitions and the reality match up is is key to you know helping us to make a better intuitions around alcohol yeah and i think that's something people can develop as they you know start their journey to sobriety if if they give up completely they can really focus on that so in alcohol for nerds uh, one of your chapters is called dry january is a vital part of this debate um i wondered if we could chat a little bit about that about your view on dry january and your view on sober sprints in general you're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Well, I, uh, as you, you said in your uh, sort of introduction, just after the introduction, I didn't actually write, you know, specifically about my personal experience in, in either of these two books. I mean, I, I, I do sort of talk about uh, my thoughts on the, the matter. And obviously, my experience informs the, the way I present the science in the uh, first book, the Alcohol Companion book. And um yeah, I, I, I mean, essentially, I did a sober sprint as I wrote the book. I, I stopped, you know, my drinking, which was, you know, not not uh, ideal, but not, you know, uh, an extreme case. But uh, you know, that experience helped me understand some of the issues which I then present in 
in in the book. Uh, and you know, it, I don't write directly about it uh, because I think that you know, as you say, p- many people have done an excellent job of that. And I think maybe it would might have got in the way of me trying to take a, tell a more general story. But uh, you know, the, the lesson I suppose the more general lesson I get from it is the fact that you know, if I learn something from you know, in, in a journalistic way, going there, seeing something with my own eyes or my own bodily experience and my own uh, interpretations of social occasions with not drinking this is absolutely you know very important to me to understand uh, the difficulties of of taking this uh, you know lifestyle choice uh, and i think you know that's it's true of everyone just because i'm uh, you know making a, a modest living about uh, out of writing about it you know i'm using a process which i think a lot of people can benefit from it's a learning curve um, which is not just about seeing it in black and white and saying, oh, this, you know, alcohol has this effect or, you know, some statistical, you know, uh, truism about alcohol, but actually feeling it and actually understanding what it feels like to be, you know, ostracized or to feel anxious after drinking or to feel anxious after giving up drinking. And all these things are actually, you know, it it only really makes sense when you've felt it yourself. So I think uh, sober sprints uh, uh, like dry January and whichever month you, you care to choose are an excellent opportunity for pretty much everyone to have a taste of, of what it might be like. Yeah, absolutely. Because even though, I mean, you, you don't have a, a huge issue with alcohol by any means, but the fact that even you've, you know, got got something out of it and you you started sensing the, the pressure, you know, that society does put on one. So um, I'm always saying to people, make sure you do a few sober sprints every year because um, you, know, you probably know the stat that 20% of social drinkers will become dependent over the years. So I just see it as a dependency test. And obviously, if you are a heavy drinker, then you're going to get many health benefits because alcohol is so toxic. Just taking it away for a month will bring significant health benefits. But I think this dependency thing is so important because if you sail through it, I mean, I'm presuming you manage your sober sprint without any slip ups, as we call them. If you manage it easily, then that's cool. You know, you've got a very healthy relationship with alcohol, but it's nice to confirm that. And obviously, if Mm. you can't do it, or if anyone's listening to this thinking, good grief, a month off alcohol, are they kidding? That means they definitely should be doing it. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah I think that, that uh, the, the, you know, I, I, as I say, I, don't, I just don't go really into, into my own personal experience. I mean, it, it certainly wasn't easy for, for a variety of reasons. But yeah, I, th- I think the, you know, actually understanding this this very fuzzy borderline in, in, in you know, dependency and uh, having a, a sort of social you know, using it as a social crutch. I mean, these things are not necessarily that easy to disentangle. Of course, there are physical side effects you might notice, physical, uh, you know, symptoms of a, of a dependency. But of course, there's not a sort of black and white uh, thing. There are there are sort of, uh, you know, it's a, it's a scale, it's a spectrum of, uh, of, of feelings. And also, these things are also very much dependent on our uh, response to stress and our response response to social situations, we can feel super anxious in a social situation because uh, we don't have a drink in our hand. Which is, you know, is that dependency or not? It may just be because we've never been in a social situation without being slightly tiddly. I mean, you know, this, it's you know, we wonder. It's a, it's not an absolute and, and clear distinction between people who are sort of dependent in a physical sense and people who are, have a sort of psychological need to be you know a little bit uh, uh inebriated in order to feel you know they can uh, relax in social situations so yeah I, I think it's an excellent opportunity to explore this uh, thing which is quite an individual thing which is one reason i don't specifically go into it about myself because you know I, you know i'm sure i have many things in common with many people but i'm sure it's it's not enough to really uh, you know generalize another of your Great title, uh, chapter titles are Alcohol's Biggest Lessons. I, I suppose for me, and I think, you know, it's a very broad science and it has lots and lots of different aspects. And, and you know, it is actually very difficult to pick one over the other, which is maybe why my my thesis is not quite as sort of crystal clear as uh, as maybe some others are. But basically, I, I think for me was to, to really look at this, uh, the breadth of the science and breadth of of uh, influences on our experiences with alcohol, which come from obviously the neuroscience, you know, the direct impact of a chemical on our, uh, 
our brains and it comes from our you know social situations that i just uh, talked about you know how we respond to social situations and also there's a there's an interplay between our you know mind and body our mind and the nervous system that uh, that you know is distributed throughout our bodies and i think that uh, realizing that to solve this problem is is about sort of harmonizing all these three things and i'm not talking a sort of esoteric way but you know we, we are beings in a physical world and in a social context and uh, with our own physiology and our own neurochemical processes going on and we have to somehow bring these into some kind of balance and this is uh, kind of a profound uh, realization you know we can't just tackle one or the other it has to be yeah. a bit of everything and i think you know for somebody who probably didn't think about the world in that way uh, you know as far as i in my conclusion is that you have to think about this problem in this way otherwise you're not going to come up with a solution uh, which is going to work for more than a very small fraction of people uh, these low risk limits, I mean, I, I'm always banging on about this, you know, if you drink more than one and a half bottles of wine a week, you know, you may be harming your health. And then, you know, often people are, are so shocked, especially here in South Africa when they hear this, because many people have been putting that away in an evening without even thinking about it. So I wanted to ask you, I mean, I do get these low risk limits from uh, the UK because I don't think they even exist here, frankly. We certainly never hear them from any government organization do the brits know about these limits do you think they're they're quite well known these days because I, uh, I don't have the statistics at my fingertips but I, I think basically the answer is no they're not very well known i think there's a uh, and if if they are known they're kind of mis misunderstood or people don't quite understand what you know what the uh, the meaning of there are and there is a deliberate attempt by people who sell alcohol, I and mean, quite understandably, I don't think you know people often make it morally outraged. But this, this is their job is to sell alcohol. I think we're kind of naive to, you know, romanticise what their function might be. But basically, they will try and, you know, reduce knowledge of the 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 the, the guideline limits for for drinking at a low risk level. And and this is essentially what's happened in the UK is that. Uh, the lowering of the limits to three years ago has basically uh, led to people not putting them on the the bottles and cans uh, that people buy, and therefore that's so, clearly the most obvious place to look for them. And people aren't aren't finding them these days. So um, yeah, knowledge is very low. I, I think you know from the other side, I I, you know, I think I put it in my book is that uh, you know the, the figure is is only one part of the equation. I think actually understanding what that figure means, uh, which is you know going back to this holistic kind of uh, understanding of what the harms of alcohol are uh, is is actually the bigger challenge i think you know even if everybody knew 14 units which is 140 milliliters per week for men and women this is the low risk guidelines i think even if people knew that figure they wouldn't really understand why it's a good idea to try and stick to those guidelines uh you know and i think it's very important to give these things meaning and to give people you know, a motivation and understanding of why it's a good idea. Otherwise, it's just a it's just a number. You know, like five yeah. five a day or whatever. You know, it's uh, exactly so. Mm. So maybe uh, we need more education about the fact that you know alcohol is responsible for more than sixty diseases. Seven different types of cancer have now been linked with alcohol. Three million people a year in the world die from alcohol related diseases. Maybe that information seems to needs to to be out there more. Well, I think the uh, the answer. I I mean, people are motivated uh, also as well, obviously, by, uh, you know, to, to avoid harm, but they're also motivated by positive things. So, you know, if if you, of course, you can say uh, uh, there are many things to avoid. There are also positive reasons to, to stick to this. If people are trying to, you know, improve their mental health or improve their, you know, um, physical functioning and, and reduce their weight, you know, there are many reasons to do this, which are, which are you know, a, a carrot rather than a stick and i think those as well you know there 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 is a healthy you know instinct to to try and find um positive behaviors and, and many people are doing it these days the kind of uh, internet in some ways is helping uh, people to yeah. achieve that so uh there's that as well i think you know as well as saying you know watch out for x y and z we should also say look if you just want to be happier and healthier and feel better and and not waste money and not maybe 
way so much, then this is this is really a solution. You know, so absolutely, it's the one thing you can do, isn't it? Yeah, I wrote a blog a while ago called Seven Ways um, Ditching the Drink Can Improve Your Looks." You know, and it got huge traffic. You know, much well, more than like, that one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it's improved your looks. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. Um, yeah, I think we share that frustration, don't we? I sensed it in your book. This drink responsibly. I mean, what does it mean? We get it here as well. The liquor industry says drink responsibly. What does that mean? You know, it's it's such a cop out, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's a it's a, a, a oxymoron is the word. It basically is asking people to do something yeah. which you know by by its nature, alcohol removes uh, the ability to act in a in a, a responsible way. So. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think we need to, uh, you know, that is a discussion we need to have is that we don't actually, from first principles, actually have all our uh, capacities that are disposable when we've had a few drinks. So, uh, you know, we have to, you know, yeah, people need to be a little bit more, uh, uh, you know, cynical about their own capacities when they drink. And, uh, you know, the flattery of the alcohol industry doesn't change reality. No, because alcohol uh, damages temporarily, but it damages your prefrontal cortex, and that's the part of the brain that ensures that you do drink, that you do act responsibly. Well, indeed, yeah, and, and the decision whether or not to drink is not something you know is not. This is sort of into the realms of philosophy, but I mean, it, I, I look at it as a, a decision which, if you are in some way. Um, alcohol dependent or at least you know have a lot of social pressure put on you to drink is not a, a decision that's made absolutely sort of rationally in the cold clear light of day i mean it's you know you're having uh, possibly withdrawal symptoms anxiety people pushing a drink in the hand and almost sort of saying to you look if you're not having a drink you're not my mate anymore you know, this is not a this is not a decision we're making uh you know with our full um and uh, uh, rational capacities at our disposal we, we basically pay penalties if we don't take that decision um yeah. so yeah i think that you know again it's, it's so even even to begin the beginning of that process of of uh, uh of drinking some alcohol is not something which is absolutely uh you know a rational responsible decision so uh anyway i think this is we're not alone in in finding issue with this uh with this slogan <laughs> which is a global phenomenon but uh, a while ago, you facilitated a very interesting discussion. I was there um, about alcohol and mental health. What kind of conclusions did you reach after listening to those speakers? Because you had some great speakers, didn't you? You had psychiatrists and people involved in mental health. Um, so, so did you reach any conclusions? Yeah, um, I mean, it, it was an issue that's, that's sort of close to my heart, and I think it, certainly they are, you know, as I was looking for a an approach to the subject. I, you know, with with my first book, it was through, uh, you know, its effect on our brain We're on the premise really that we drink in order to make ourselves feel differently. There is a kind of, uh, re, you know, it's a reason to drink, or at least be, uh, to drink beyond a very small level, which is maybe to for the taste or, I mean, which is a genuine reason, you know, to appreciate flavor. But the reality is that a lot of people go a little bit beyond that and are actually really using it as some form of sort of self-medication. So that was always my my angle, and I think you know, in the current circumstances, we're obviously facing, you know, significant pressures on our you know finances and our health, and you know, possibly suffering grief and anxiety about our uh, relatives and so forth. So it's it, we're in a, a stressful uh, situation with the with the pandemic, which affects us all from where I am to where you are. So um, yeah, I thought it was a, a, a timely discussion, and I think uh, yeah, basically the the speakers sort of reinforce the fact that uh, you know the particularly uh, you know in this situation we have uh, a potential for people who are you know struggling with their alcohol use that they may you know slip further into that uh, into those problems so uh, you know we have to be careful to to protect those people because it has uh, you know clear implications for their mental health but also for their physical health so uh, yeah I, I thought uh, you know it kind of in a way, heighten the agenda. The agenda is a, is a heightened, uh, uh, you know, level at the moment. Um, with with some good news as well. There are people who are cutting down and using this as an opportunity to do so. So, 
Yes, I think the virus, um, I mean, over here, as you may know, we had an alcohol ban, you know, so um, it sh the the surveys um, told us that, that people were falling into two camps. You know, the people that didn't drink very much, they they just didn't drink and, and they were fine. But the people that were drinking, you know, not crazy amounts, but were very regular drinkers, daily drinkers, they made sure they went out and they got, you know, boxes of wine to see them through the alcohol ban. And then they started started drinking more than they would normally drink so it went you know both yeah. ways it's a polar it's a polarizing thing and I, I think you know if you have a, a stress response you know you're using alcohol as a stress response then you know clearly a, a mounting uh, a, a stress as we have now is is, is going to be a, a trigger for you to uh, to drink some more so uh, yeah watch this space I think I don't think this is over yet I think we've kind of had a you know first six months or what have you of, of this this crisis and the, the patterns will quite possibly change and we're also looking at uh people who are drinking in a home situation often on their own under stress lonely on you know it's it's um it's not just about quantity it's also about you know where we're drinking if if we were all social drinkers and what have you in some ways and you know i know I've talked about the problems with that but also you know you are at least being overseen by people people can see how you are if you're sitting at your in uh, home watching netflix or youtube i mean nobody's there to to really look after you so um you know it has has some other implications other than the the, uh, the alcohol itself the isolation is also a very uh, worrying factor yeah i think that kind of transition from using it socially to using it to self-medicate is is quite a warning sign. I mean, I had that experience myself, my 20s, my 30s, drinking socially. But as I got into my 40s and 50s, it was more about getting home from work, opening a bottle to to change how I felt, you know, to reduce the yeah. stress. Yeah, I think it's, it, the funny thing is, at least in the UK, and I don't know what South, South Africa, imagine maybe has similar uh, patterns, but I think uh, somehow we... Um, associate that that style of drinking the sort of uh, tipple before uh before dinner or the sort of uh, you know uh well, it reminds me a bit of jerry from uh, you know the good life that kind of uh, thing he's sort of pours himself a big one before his uh, before his dinner but uh, you know that kind that's sort of considered the sort of mature style of drinking this is this is this is this is responsible drinking but actually you know this is actually maybe when it's got to a point where it is it's become a a, a self you know, a prescribed medicine. Uh, so it, we, again, it's one of those things we just need to maybe think about a little bit more and, you know, the motivations for drinking are almost as important as the substance itself. <clears throat> yeah, there's a, a blurry line, isn't there, between those two? Mm -hmm. And of course, um, in pandemic times, we've got the working from home on your Zoom with a glass beside you. I mean, that's happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose if you're uh, you're somebody who's always itching to head to the pub at lunchtime, then uh, you know there's nothing to uh, stop you from uh, yeah doing so doing so every day in a sense. Yeah, I think we're going to see more of that. Sadly, um, I you know I had a corporate career as you know for years, and I was used to um, kind of justify my behaviour by saying, "Well, I work hard and I play hard. That's just the kind of person I am." And you use that phrase in your book, don't you? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's if you see that expression, basically, you know what play hard means. It doesn't mean uh, going out to play for a couple of games of squash a week, does it? It means basically you, you go. It means getting hammered. <laughs> <laughs> Friday night, you go and get hammered with your workmates, uh, probably. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's a bit of a, a, a byword for, for for something else, and I, I think I, I actually look at it also. I mean, if you look at athletes, people who you know push themselves to a point in which they're essentially in some degree of physical or mental pain when they're when they're not uh, not working or not uh, exerting themselves and I think that uh, you know this is a very good uh, example of how we can put ourselves in a situation we are crying out for a medication we're crying out for something which is going to soothe our stress and anxiety and uh, yeah I think you know it's, it's a common uh, phenomenon and, and alcohol does you know to some extent work as an analgesic it reduces pain physical pain if you ever play rugby or run or whatever i mean if it does feel quite a relief if you if you're quite sore after after exertion to have a drink it's like wow i feel fine now but of course it is you know we're talking to a crowd who knows that this is not a long-term solution yeah and i think isn't it the japanese i mean that's probably changed now but they're these guys salary men they mm -hmm. they work so hard you know for like 
12 at least hours a day. And then they all had to go to the bar for, you know, and drink shots all night. And it was all part of the culture. Yeah, I think, well, I think that's true in the UK. I mean, I worked in some, I worked in advertising at one point and, you know, obviously journalism is not a a teetotaling profession on the whole. And, uh, you know, I I would say journalism less so, but certainly uh, in the advertising uh, world, there was a, there were, there was an expectation that you would get a bit pissed with your boss basically and if you, if you didn't then you know you weren't one of the gang anymore and you sort of I don't know whether it's true or not but you maybe at least felt that there was maybe a penalty to be paid for being uh, you know standing out like that it's madness really when you think that you know places like that and advertising I don't know what, who who suffers if you make a bad decision but uh, if you uh if you're working in a bank or in some other you know or any any job with with responsibility you know to, to come home, uh, to come into the office, you know, three sheets to the wind is just crazy, really. I mean, who would, why, why is that allowed? You know, transferring millions from one bank account to the next. And then you get kind of manual workers and factory workers who maybe don't have huge amount of responsibility uh, in some cases, and they get breathalyzed. You know, well, that happens here. I think. I think they do it at SAB, the brewery, because, uh, you know, they because right. the people get, get a lot of free booze. So they actually breathalyze them. But as you, I, I agree, I think they should breathalyze bankers. Well, You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. I mean, the re- reality is you probably, I mean, uh, the, the reality, and uh, MPs is actually a big issue in the UK, but the reality is, yeah, that the, somebody who works in that situation could, yes, end up, killing some you know they're one of their colleagues or themselves or, or what have you which is an appalling thing but if you're so say moving millions around i mean you you know there are untold damage that can uh, ensue from a mistake so uh, yeah i think there's uh, it's not about being puritanical i'm not saying what they should do in their people should do in their spare time it's it, but that is not their spare time so so, so your book, Phil, it ends on rather an optimistic note, which we'll discuss in a minute. But you, uh, you also use this this phrase that I love. I think I'm going to steal it from you. It, you, you said that sobriety sizzles. Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, that one. was an expression I stole from a, 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 an advertising salesperson that I um, uh, I work with at one publication, and he he always used to say that you should sell the uh, sell the sizzle, not the sausage. Uh, you know, which is saying that you you really. Uh, you know, there are, there's lots of um, positive and, and ex- inspiring things about uh, sobriety that, you know, I think maybe can be used to sell, you know, the substance of, of, of this activity uh, rather well. And I think with, um, you know, if you, you look at the costs involved with uh, not drinking or reducing your alcohol intake to a, a low risk amount, I mean, you're actually talking about reducing your costs often quite <clears throat> considerably for benefits, you know, to your mental health as we discussed and to your physical health possibly your weight your motivation your sleep all sorts of um benefits for less money so you know from a, a point of view of a um you know salesperson somebody's actually trying to, to trigger a uh, some sort of change of thinking i think you, you there are a lot of good levers here um and and you know which which actually pay off for the customer of this uh, free product Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's the one thing that you can stop doing that will, um, you know, save you money, improve your health, make you look better. I mean, if there was a pill that did all those things, we, we'd all be queuing up for it, wouldn't we? Mm. So, I, I, think, I think part of the problem, I mean, I'm, I'm no, by no means a sort of uh, rabid capitalist, but part of the problem is the fact that it, it doesn't cost anything and therefore there's nobody out there selling it. <laughs> So it's uh, uh, if only you could put a price label on it, then people would be, be rushing out, you know, hoardings on every building. But uh, as it is, it costs nothing, and therefore there's nobody to champion it really. But uh, well, apart from you and I, but uh, yeah. oh well, we'll we'll carry on doing our best then. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so so I think you you're getting the impression that things might be changing, and uh, I heard a stat the other day in the UK that um, I think it's 25% of young people, you know, we're talking 18 to 25, they actually don't drink or they don't drink much and they see it as something their parents do, you know, and it's, it's, it is just not cool. And I must say, sadly, I don't get the impression that that's happening here, but uh, I don't know about where you live, but how do you feel about the UK? Do you think um, things are changing a little bit? 
Yeah, I think they are. I mean, the statistics are, are very much saying so. I mean, it, it, it's it's become a sort of polarized thing, and that the youth are, are generally drinking less, and and people, you know, the the baby boomers that uh, are, are you know basically sticking to uh, to drinking patterns they maybe picked up in the sixties and seventies. So uh, yeah, there's a big polarization. I, you know, explanation. The jury's still out as, as to an explanation, but um, you know, I, I think that uh, you know the opportunities that younger people have today to, to socialize are, are really mediated by social media and uh you know zoom and all sorts of uh, apps i've probably never heard of uh, uh and TikTok. alcohol is just, <laughs> tiktok yes let's let's mention tiktok let's pretend we know what's going on uh <laughs> and uh yeah so they, they you know these things are much cooler than going to stand stand around a bar and 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 pour a you know intoxicating liquid down your throat it, it just that, that just looks like something from the stone age uh, I, I i'm talking from the perspective of a 20 something and i'm which i'm not obviously but uh <laughs> i think there is a there's a rationale behind it i think also these yeah. external so it's not really about the alcohol per se it's about society and 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 the op- being other positive opportunities which i think do also uh impact on you know uh less young people let's say um, because you know we we're talking now from South Africa to Austria, and you know there there are uh, new opportunities opening up for everyone, and I think that does actually mean that there is potential for change within you know an older population who is maybe taking a little bit longer to catch up with technology and change their lifestyles. But um, you know the things which I think are convincing younger people that alcohol is not uh, the bill and end all of their social life can also apply to older people. It may just take a little bit longer. But it's it's very interesting, isn't it? Because the young people now they they think it's not cool to drink. So in a way, it's back to image. Whereas uh, some of us, you know, particularly women, I think uh, we've got hoodwinked over the years into thinking that you know drinking wine is glamorous, you know, and if we're not drinking wine, then you know we we're not mm-hmm. really having a full and happy life because the wine industry have targeted women and the young moms, you know, especially the mommy juice ruthlessly. Mm-hmm. So. We've all been brainwashed a little bit. So it, the, the image thing, you know, so if the young people do think it's it's not cool, then then that's great, you know, if it changes their yeah. behaviour. About that, uh, you know, the, the female, uh, you know, marketing, I mean, it's something that comes up quite quite a lot these days about uh, don't pink my drink as a as sort of a hashtag campaign to try and uh, oppose that. And I think it's something, you know, where women are experiencing some of the, marketing tactics which have been used very successfully you know to, to market to men over the uh, you know generations where you know it becomes part of your gender identity to drink and somehow part of your rebellion and your and your empowerment you know to rebel against your you know uh, super, you know bosses and partners or whatever and do your own thing and I think it's uh, well it's I think it's nonsense really but I think it's been used uh, you know, really just using a similar uh, formula, which has now been shifted to, to, to women and actually provides, I think, quite useful insight for men as to, to what's going on in the way that, uh, you know, the beer and the football and the, all these male sort of things are kind of associated and, and uh, you know, used essentially to ma- manipulate your identity in order to fill somebody else's pockets. Yeah, yeah. I hate the manipulation, the kind of women's empowerment, because it's it's so harmful because alcohol damages females, I think, more more so than men. So it's um it's it's really not good. Apparently, um, you know, the alcohol-free drinks market is absolutely exploding. I mean, over there in the UK, you've got Club Soda. And here, even here in South Africa last October, we had what they called a mindful drinks festival. So very similar to what Club Soda do. And the, I think there must have been about 50 products there, really good products. So I think the fact that that market is exploding and someone who who's connected with AB InBev which I think is international but SAB is is uh, part of it uh, they they t- tell me that um, they've um, appointed a a director for alcohol free drinks and that director has been told that within 5 years you know he'll be responsible for 25% of the revenue 
And that's that's incredible, you know, because yeah. I think these huge uh, liquor industry people, they, they must spend a lot of money doing surveys. So they must be very in touch with lifestyle shifts, you know. Yeah. So maybe there, there is a, a shift to sizzling sobriety on the horizon. Indeed. I think I think actually in a way, and you know, I think there's obviously a, a certain amount of animosity towards, uh, you know, people who produce alcoholic drinks, but uh, I, don't, I don't think there is a, generally a, a kind of, um, witting kind of, uh, you know, s- s- sociopathic kind of uh, agenda going on there. It's just a business. But uh, the, yeah, but I think as we were talking about the, the the drivers for change, I think, you know, to have a commercial driver like having, uh, you know, the ability to sell a product on the basis of, you know, not drinking is, is an important part of it, whether we uh, drink, you know, personally drink them or not, it's, it's, it's going to actually provide motors for, for, for change um, with, with some issues attached to them. But uh, I, th- I think it should be quite welcomed. And I think it is also genuinely, from my own personal experience, a useful tool in these social situations we've discussed where people are trying to sort of bend, twist your arm to, to have a drink. If you have something that looks like a drink, you know, it just solves a problem in in one go, and it, it's it serves as a kind of uh, false flag kind of uh, um, uh, thing. So we don't have to have that discussion. I think that's very helpful. Um, yeah, yeah. It just takes the focus off off you, doesn't it? If you're trying to just be low key about what you're doing, but yeah, the the alcohol free kind of business being generated, I, I think it's great because we saw with the alcohol ban here, you know, it's. It's especially, I think, in South Africa, it's a whole industry, you know, and there's thousands and thousands of jobs at stake. Mm-hmm. So, if, um, you know, when they closed uh, off alcohol for a while, there, there were lots of people, you know, laid off uh, only temporarily, perhaps, but even so. So, if, you know, mm-hmm. people can. We've got a guy, interestingly, in our community, and he's in advertising, and he was laid off a while ago because of the pandemic. And then he went for a job at um, SAB, the brewery, and they told him that his job, you know, would be to market beer and make it look cool, etc. And he said, I can't accept this job because I'm like three months sober and I'm not going to jeopardize that. And he was obviously disappointed. But I said to him, you've got to start pitching um, to help make alcohol free drinks look glamorous because Mm. people like the duchess i don't know if you know the duchess but but they've Mm. got beautiful social media and you know they make drinking their product look very enticing just as the the liquor brands have been doing for years yes so uh, i see that really positively and a a bit of hope Mm. for the future every saturday afternoon we open up our tribe sober zoom cafe it's a safe space where our members can connect check in and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at tribesober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at tribesober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. Absolutely, yeah. And I think, uh, you know, people can learn, you know, as we've said, by taking sober sprints or even if even if it's a, a one-night sober sprint where they go to the pub yeah. and realize that they, you know, can fake it uh, for an evening and, and still have a reasonably good time. And this is all, all part of the learning process. And I think uh, having a placebo to hand like that is uh, is a very useful uh, useful tool. Yeah, I mean, I think I've tried every alcohol-free wine, every alcohol free beverage on the planet but personally i love alcohol free beer and that's that's my go-to drink now and i never used to drink beer when i was drinking okay. which is strange but there's so much out there that i think everybody can can find something and just to i, I remember in my early days of sobriety well i felt very sorry for myself anyway but uh, if if i'd have only been able to have a glass of water you know or or a coke when i was out i would have been even more grumpy and sorry for myself so just the mm. fact that i could have you know a beer or or some alcohol free wine made made all the difference to yeah. me just a little thing but it it does it's a placebo it's a tool yeah and i think it's a reward i mean a symbolic reward i suppose these sort of uh, you know gold stars on the fridge for for kids and stuff like that i mean you know in a way, we're doing that for ourselves, and you know, in, in saying, "Okay, this is the end of the week. I deserve a, a treat. I'm now." You know, it, it, it's a little signpost that this, we are doing something to sort of indulge ourselves. And uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a strange thing, and uh, but uh, yeah, it's something that uh, you know we're, we're 
now in a position to to reward ourselves with so yeah because drinking starts out for many as rituals you know for me it was definitely a ritual get home have a huge glass of wine it, that was my reward for working so hard all day but now you know if i have been out all day you know or working from home on my computer all day and i want to draw a line then i'll just grab an alcohol free drink and some snacks and you know kick off my shoes and put my feet up and that's the ritual and that's what I, I don't want to be deprived of. And you don't have to be deprived of it. You just have to shift it and reconfigure it a little bit. Okay, well, Phil, we've been chatting for, for ages. Anything that we haven't talked about that you're, you think you should add? Uh, right, okay. Uh, well, I, as, you, as you've mentioned, I, I have two books now. I, I have, you know, the, my first book, which is kind of a reasonably thick book, which is sort of a science uh, sort of overview of the science of alcohol, and the second one, which is alcohol for nerds, which is a very thin one. I uh, just just explain why I did that, which is uh, really you know the science stuff you know raises a whole lot of questions that we've touched on at the moment about developing intuition and understanding some of the implications of these things. And I suppose basically the questions I've raised and and left a little bit open in the first book, I, I've tried to answer in the in the second one, the alcohol for nerds is is my response. It, it is a bit more personal don't actually sort of go into sort of deep autobiographical detail but you know I, I felt that if I was going to you know leave a bit of a gap uh, in you know uh, I, I should actually come back and 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 provide an answer uh, I'm sure many people can offer their own but uh, that's that's the logic behind it and and maybe why one book is a lot thicker than the other is the fact that uh, you know I'm, one is my little two penneth and the other one is is the uh, contribution of many thousands of scientists to the topic so uh, yeah, that's just to explain that. And the nerds, obviously, is really just to, you know, just say that, uh, you know, science can help us make things better um, if, if, if we take it on board and, and understand it and embrace it, I believe is the term. And what about your website? Because you, you chair these discussions sometimes. So that's philcane.com. Philcane.com, a not very imaginative uh, URL, but I thought <laughs> I, I'm not going to have I'm probably no reason to change it uh, for the next few years. So, yeah, it's my name, Phil Kane, like, uh, like the biblical Kane. Okay, well, thank you so much, Phil. That was really interesting. So let me pull out a few things from that conversation to highlight. Things that can be particularly useful to those of us busy changing our relationship with alcohol. So firstly, I'd like to mention that Phil doesn't have a particularly difficult relationship with alcohol, but he's very alcohol conscious and he understands why it can become a problem for so many. And it's actually the science behind this that fascinates him. He didn't want to write a book about his personal experience. He wanted to present it from a scientific perspective. He stopped drinking for the period while he wrote his books to better experience the discomfort of going without it when socialising or relaxing. We agreed that taking a break from the booze is essential. Whether it's dry January, sober spring or something else, it's essential to do this if you are a drinker because dependency can creep up on you over the years and this is a great way to test whether or not you are becoming dependent. If it's a breeze to get through a month without alcohol, then well done. That means your relationship with alcohol is very healthy. But if it's not, or if you can't even contemplate a month without alcohol, then you may need to make some changes. If you'd like to try a sober sprint, then just sign up as a Tribe Sober member and we'll put you straight on our 30-day alcohol-free challenge. Go to tribesober.com and click on Join Our Tribe. We agreed that there was a difference between physical addiction and psychological addiction. In our community, we've noticed that people get through the physical withdrawal symptoms within a few weeks, but the psychological withdrawal can actually take years. That's why it's so important to change your deep-seated beliefs around alcohol so that you don't feel continually deprived. Phil explained that the low risk limits, one and a half bottles a week or six beers, are actually not well known, even in the UK where they come from. People just don't take them seriously, even if they do know about them. 
there is in fact some very serious research behind these guidelines. So people should take them seriously, but they tend to think it's just something that the government dreamt up to control them. COVID, of course, has brought extra stress into everybody's life. And many people use alcohol to change the way they feel, to self-medicate. COVID has been polarising. The people that use it to self-medicate are actually drinking more. Whereas some who weren't that bothered about alcohol in the first place, they've stopped altogether. But COVID's caused more people to actually enjoy and get used to drinking alone, which is not a good sign. Phil and I agreed that drink responsibly is a bit of an oxymoron. The liquor industry are very keen on this phrase. They seem to think as long as they've told us to drink responsibly, then they've done their duty in warning us about the toxic nature of their products. But of course it's an oxymoron because alcohol removes our ability to behave responsibly. It damages our prefrontal cortex. We also debated whether it's best to use the carrot or the stick when persuading people to change their relationship with alcohol. I must admit, I'm rather guilty of uh, using the stick. I've, I've done endless blogs and Facebook Lives and indeed our workshop focuses on the dangers of alcohol, the fact that it's linked to, linked to seven different types of cancer and 60 plus diseases, etc., but Phil maintains, and I agree with him, he, he says it's quite easy to make a business case for sobriety. And he tells us why sobriety sizzles. All we've got to emphasise is that for zero financial outlay, people can feel happier, healthier, save money and lose weight. After all, if there was a pill that did that, it would be in great demand, wouldn't it? One of the tools in our workshop toolkit is do your research and Phil's book should be a vital part of your research. The more you understand about this legal drug called alcohol, the better. So just a reminder, his two books are called The Alcohol Companion and Alcohol for Nerds. In fact, you can even read a free sample. So just go to his website, which is called philcane.com and you'll be able to, in fact, get samples of, of his two books and purchase them there so that's it from me thanks so much for listening don't forget to subscribe and share see you next week ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain it's hard it takes courage and grit and an experienced guide and that's where we come in here at tribe sober we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards. And that's just for starters. So go to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.